How are you? Does the response fine work? <laughs> fine, thanks. <laughs> what did you say? Yes, thank yeah, you. Fine, 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 thank you. Okay, Brian, nice to see you. Yeah. It's a lot, isn't it, in a day, sitting with our own heart and mind. Many things. We're a, a rich, diverse bunch of experiences, each of us. So I want to give a little bit more context for what we're doing here. Um, last night, I... Outlined the precepts and talked about this as the foundation, like a foundation stone for our practice. And I didn't go on to say the next parts of what we're doing. <clears throat> so, if precepts, this uh, care to our speech and behavior, is a foundation. For this is a foundation for what might be called the cultivation of the mind, which is what we've been beginning today. And the cultivation of the mind is, we could say, a foundation, but also a partner to the freeing of the mind. So, what do I mean by that, or what does what do the teachings mean by that? <coughs> Cultivation is the uh, translation for the word bhavana, which is often used, which is the word for meditation in the tradition. And cultivation you can think of very much like the cultivation of a garden. And you can either, you know, do nothing to your garden and it will grow whatever happens to be planted there, actually, or not planted there, whatever random seeds. Uh, may be there from previous conditions. Or we can tend the garden, we can till the soil, we can add water, we can um, put nourishment there, we can plant certain things. And this supports the mind, in this metaphor, this cultivation supports the mind to come to presence, supports the mind to come to rest a little bit more. So if I take the metaphor further, if you you know, sit with your mind sometimes or live with your mind sometimes, which we all do, right? Sometimes there are things that arise in it that may feel like massive, big, you know, gnarly old lumps of tree or dead branches or something in your garden that doesn't seem like it's beneficial or wholesome. It might be a pattern of, you know, telling ourselves how terrible we are, for example, when the garden isn't tended, what happens is that thing can really start to shout the loudest. And our perception, our mind, our, our attention goes there and it's like, oh my God, I really am this thing. I really am this story of being, in this case, terrible, bad, the worst, whatever it might be. <clears throat> the cultivation of beautiful qualities, of mindfulness of concentration, of persistence, of patience, of kindness, of gentleness, of uprightness, many, many qualities that you're cultivating here. They start to open out the territory a little bit. That our perception, our mind doesn't just immediately see this, there's one thing at the bottom of the garden. We start to see all the other things that are there and it starts to give us a little bit more perspective. Right, we can go, okay, wow, there's many different things here. <clears throat> That's one way of looking at cultivation. And that cultivation allows us to not be so fixated on the particular thing. Right? Do any of you have a particular kind of one or two or five fixations where your mind tends to, tends to go? Um, sometimes they can be really mundane things. They're just sort of habits where we... It's not like something terrible. It's just I always go to planning. I just always end up sitting in meditation planning my next retreat. Right? 
So it's not like it's something ghastly in your garden. It's just this is the pathway we go, and we end up in this same little hedge. Mm, yeah, planning. Right. Now, it might be really exciting to plan our next retreat for a while, but it really gets boring, doesn't it, after a while? There was one man on a retreat, I tell this story sometimes, where I was teaching, and uh, he, 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 his top three things in his mind at that particular time in his life, and it can change, can't it? You know, certain conditions in our life change, and then, woof, other things arise that might be harder to deal with. But this particular guy, he didn't have anything particularly problematic in his mind. He was a screenwriter, very creative, doing well, came on retreat, um, uh, came to the interview, I think, on the second day. He goes, ah, I'm really enjoying all this contents of my mind. It's great. I've got my next play written. and I, uh, Okay, fine. He also said, I don't believe in all this here and now stuff. That's all from the 60s, he said. But that's like, okay. <laughs> it's a little longer ago than that. But, um, and then on the fourth day he came and he was like, help, help, I can't stand it anymore. I don't have any freedom here. I'm just compelled. And he saw even the most brilliant creative things, which can be beautiful, when our relationship to them, so it could be wonderful things, terrible things, or kind of neutral things in our mind, when our relationship to them isn't clear, they are binding. They are uh, an expression of not being free, actually. And the extent to which we bind ourselves to the marvelous machinations of our mind, we're not learning anything about the tendency to bind. And as one of my teachers used to say, it's like night and day. You know, you bind yourself to something and then conditions change and you're bound to something else. The mind keeps fixating on something else. So we're interested in the cultivation as a support and partner to freeing up the mind to need to find its home in any particular contents. To need to find its refuge its safety, its ground in any particular contents. Contents can be thought, contents can be emotion, contents can be uh, uh, sort of atmospheres of mind. Even the most sublime. We cultivate the sublime and the beautiful because it lets us breathe out a little bit better. And it's beautiful in and of itself. But the Buddha is pointing to actually the relinquishing the need to make our home in any of it. Because he's pointing to something that is freed up from making home in the conditioned nature of things. So we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> We'll get there by Tuesday morning. Um, so it's a it's a lifetime's work, really. It's a beautiful work if we care to undertake it. So I'll say more about the freeing of the mind. We will say more about the freeing of the mind as we go along. But this second tier, if you like, the cultivation of the mind, that's what we've been attending to mostly today. They they go hand in hand. All of them. You can't separate them uh, in any ultimately meaningful way. But largely this attention to feet, this attention to belly, this attention to body breathing and unhooking from the contents is about cultivation. Cultivating mindfulness, presence, concentration, Patience, steadfastness, perseverance, hanging in there <coughs> when your mind, probably at times today, might have been kicking and screaming or bored or complaining. Anybody's mind complain today about anything? Yeah. It, what the possibility here is, is that all those things, they'll still go on. Uh, or all our the kind of patternings that we have, whether it's anger or 
desire for something else or comparative judgment or whatever it is, those, those things may, will still arise. What the difference is when we start cultivating is that we start to get a perspective on them, not to be pulled and pushed around by them. On one level, they're all welcome. It's our belief that they have ultimate meaning that keeps us in this restless relationship with the contents of our mind. So, how did it go today? Cultivating presence. Presence as that uh, firm, grounded, benevolent, presence. Well, usually what happens is we see everything that's in the way of that. And it will stand out really clearly. So even though we've been talking a lot about presence and belly and mindfulness of breathing, what will stand out very, very clearly is all that isn't that. And that's not a mistake. That's not a mistake. It's actually very uh, normal. And good news in the sense that normally those things are driving us. That boredom that we might have to sit here with and think that Qigong and insight meditation must be the most boring thing that you know, was ever invented on earth. While we start to stop with that, we're not being driven by it. Normally those forces drive us and that would have us wherever you go when you're bored. To the fridge. To your emails. <laughs> Not bad things, necessarily, but not checked, not looked at, not seen, not, not recognized as we keep moving. We keep following the momentum of the mind when we don't stop to take a look at it. That's why it's very noble, courageous, and not that easy, actually. So what may have arisen for you today that made it seemingly not that easy to be here? got this many pages <laughs> I won't say them all we could all, I'm sure we could all give a blow by blow account usually from the uh, sort of reactive mind we think initially the things that make it not easy <laughs> it might be something like it's, it's Brad that's, that's what it is that's what makes it difficult for me to be here he gets me to do these you know daft things or it makes me stand still when I want to move around or makes me move around when I want to stand still or, you know if we you know that's where our kind of conventional mind goes is into external uh, blaming and uh, maybe you didn't think that today but this is a sort of an example of where the mind would normally go with things and that's what's making my life difficult you ever have that thought It's you. You're making my life difficult. Now, it may be that there are certain difficult people in your life. I'm sure most of us seem to have those. But it's what we're learning here is something else. Is something else. That will actually give us more opportunity to deal with the very things of our life, not to withdraw from it. So I'm going to name briefly the classical hindrances to presence in the texts that are spoken about in all countries where people practice these arts that are very normal, universal factors of the human mind. See if you had any of these today. The first one is usually called aversion. 
Did anybody have any aversion today? Aversion is, I don't like this, I don't want this, I will not have this, not this, not this. It's a kind of contention with reality. This is one of my most well-known hindrances. You can say I'm quite imp- impassioned when I speak about it. Right? This contention with reality. You know, sometimes before we actually get into spiritual practice, we think reality sounds fantastic. Reality. Right? But actually, sometimes the nuts and bolts of coming into contact with reality is we are in reaction to it. We don't want it. I don't want this leg pain. I don't want that person sitting there. I don't want to be jiggling around now. I want to be still. I don't want to be still now. I want to be jiggling around. Right? This kind of aversion. I don't want penne. I want spaghetti. You know, whatever, whatever it is, does... Some of us have it as a style of going through life, as a kind of a style. And these some are mundane examples, but it's very it goes very deep, this tendency, to the rejection of ourself, to the rejection of our world. So this arises and we need to see it. It's normal. It can be met. It is a hindrance uh, to, uh, on one level it's a hindrance because we get pulled by it, don't we? The aversion arises, the anger arises, the impatience arises, same kind of thing. When's this sitting going to end? Come on, come on. We, We feel that arise. It feels like a hindrance when it pulls us from the perspective of freeing the mind when there is enough ground we can actually see the aversion and not be pulled by it oh here's aversion wow wow here's aversion same force in the world that does all kinds of things we might think we would never do but where do those things begin in a human mind unchecked unworked with so in this sense it's a profound work very profound work second hindrance of um, sometimes called desire it's kind of a lusty craving for something else something else than this so the fantasies of ice cream of some holidays of someone this, it kind of takes us off our seat. We're kind of out there looking for something better, something more exciting, something more to eat. Why? Partly it's a patterning. It needs care. It needs seeing. It needs holding. Partly also because we're not used to learning how to sit and resonate with something a bit more neutral, a bit less dramatic, a bit less edible. It's an art, one of the meditative arts is to start to come home to what is more apparently neutral on the surface, less colourful. I told the group today this teaching I like very much from the Tibetan tradition where it says, beneath the pauper's house, There are many treasures, but the pauper never listens, and the treasures never say, I am here. The treasure, the gold of um, cultivation and freedom doesn't shout as loud as some of our um, main main patterns, but we, we wouldn't be here unless we had a sense for what's possible for us beyond the conditioned nature of our mind. The seeking for the pleasurable, a more pleasurable experience limits our freedom. Nothing wrong with pleasure. It's the seeking for it 
and moving away from where we are starts to limit our world, limit our mind. I thought of it today when we went out to walk together just before lunch. It was beautiful, beautiful, sunny morning. And um, I noticed, and it's completely fine, nothing, no, no issue here. I noticed that, of course, I drifted to the sunny side of the lawn. There was a kind of a shadowy side, wasn't there? And there was a sunny side. And I drifted there because it was nice in the sun. And after all, we didn't get much this year, and don't I deserve it? You know. And it's fine. I'm, I really hope you got to enjoy the sun. But it reminded me of a story of um, which I also tell regularly because it's a very it illustrates very well. Um, teaching, I had the privilege um, fourteen years ago actually to teach in India, in North India, in Bodhgaya, which is the uh, where the the place where the Buddha sat under the tree and had his awakening, and it's a pilgrimage spot for uh, Buddhist countries and Buddhist people or people who are inspired by the Buddha. <coughs> and it was January in North India, where it can be cold and it can be sunny in the day, like winter sun. And it can also get cold out of the sun. And this young woman came to the group meeting. It was four or five days into the retreat. And she said um, uh, something, I really understood something today. She said, I was doing my walking meditation in a spot um, on the concrete. You know how concrete warms up in the sun. And it's bare feet's really nice, especially when it's cold out there. You put your, your foot on the warm concrete. She said, every walking, I was doing my walking meditation there, and there would be four or five walking meditation periods in the day. And she said, and by, I don't know, four o'clock, she said, I noticed that my walking path had gone from being ten meters long to one and a half meters long. And she hadn't quite gotten it yet. <laughs> she was just going, you know, and back again, like that. And we do that. We just follow very often our instinct. She said, but then she woke up and she got it. She said, oh, the 10 meters that was in the sun in the morning had got smaller and smaller. So there was only one and a half meters in the sun and eight and a half meters in the shadow. So she wasn't going to walk there because it was cold to stand on. Fine, it's not an ethical issue. But for her, she got really interested And that's where practice can become interesting. She said, that's what I do in my life. Something gets a little bit more uncomfortable or a little bit less pleasurable and my world starts to shrink. It gets more limited. I only want to walk, metaphorically, in the places where the sun still shines. And the limitation that she saw that that caused in her life. You know what it's like when, you know, let's say it's five neighbours we don't speak to anymore in our street. It can happen, can't it? You know? And so we don't want to go out of the house when that neighbour's opening the door. Or when that one's opening the door. And when that one opens the door, I go out and show who's boss. You know, our world starts to get... Um, determined and conditioned by our aversions and our desires. And that's not freedom. That's not freedom. The hindrance of sleepiness. Anybody not have that today? (laughs) It's very normal on the first day. Maybe you didn't. Not everybody has all the hindrances all the time. But that kind of mind that wants to go to sleep. And sometimes, as I said this morning, it's organic, we need to rest. And sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's, I think someone said today in the group, not used to sitting this long, that, um, yeah, when it gets quiet, that's what the mind knows what to do, it falls asleep then. Again, so there we want to tune up a little bit our capacity to resonate with what's more quiet, 
listening out for what's not shouting the loudest. Restlessness, another hindrance. From the kind of twitchy energy that's like, come on, get a move on. Does anybody have that today? In the queue for the soup? Come on. From the restlessness of just that, that kind of antsy, it's, it's, it goes also very deep. Quality of mind that's just kind of agitated, twitching. And the last hindrance of doubt, the kind of doubt that is uh, hardening, uh, sort of narrows, basically narrows down our world. Not the kind of doubt that's got questions and curiosity and wondering, and, but the kind of doubt that, that, that narrows us down. Often happens when there's other hindrances going on and we haven't seen them. You know, let's say we're feeling a bit tired and a little bit aversive and a bit scratchy and and then it's like oh this is hopeless insight meditation chigong it's not chigong it's jiggling around and we start to and this the mind and the heart starts to contract into a kind of like a walnut (coughs) shell and we kind of harden and it feels pretty dry and lifeless. Hey, you got one great chair there at the moment. <laughs> it's the, the, um, the, bo- the booby prize chair at the moment. I think we've got lots of those in the house. They don't always make it in here. But... So the hindrances, know them, see them, name them, work with them. They are a hindrance when they pull us and we believe them as an ultimate truth. Another thing that can make it difficult is that we have an idea about meditation, that it's about concentration, because it is part of it. It is about concentration, but many of us have an idea of what concentration is looks like from our training of school or study or whatever it is. And from an idea that because the mind can be such a troubling (coughs) guest at times, that concentration must mean I push all of that uncomfortable stuff of the mind away and I concentrate here and then it will be all right. And I'm kind of parodying it a little bit, hopefully not in an unkind way, but that way that we sometimes think that we have to clamp and tighten in order to push away the difficult scenarios of our mind. And then concentration, grounding, presence becomes a willful act of clamping. And we get utterly exhausted. And if, you, if that rings any bells for you, there's no judgment necessary. No self-judgment necessary. It's how we learn. Where we do that for a day or a retreat or a two years in our practice and we go, oh, hold on a minute. I've squeezed all the joy out of this. We don't concentrate in order to meditate. We meditate to find out how concentration comes together. How it's actually a natural process that does take time, but natural in the sense that as we bear the body and mind, as we keep bearing mindfulness to to belly, to breathing, mind wanders, yes, we breathe out, 
slowly and surely we start to get the sense of a more gathered presence. It's more natural. And we want to breathe out because it feels good to breathe out. That there's something more like homecoming to, oh, phew, what a relief. So see for any of you if that rings a bell, this tightening up around the concentration. And one of the markers of it will be the kind of dryness, brittleness, hardness, um, joylessness. Doesn't mean you need to be exuberant all the time, but it's something that has a quality of life in it. The concentration of mind where it's not concentration to a narrow, a narrow, tight spot. But in a way, a concentration of our presence, like we're all here, we're concentrated. It's, it's, a, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. With our belly, and our heart, and our head, and our body. It kind of comes together. All the disparate parts, somebody said today in the group, it's a little bit like for her having been on an aeroplane, landing down, and it takes a couple of, takes a while for all the bits to catch up with you. We call it jet lag, right? All the bits kind of, I'm back here. What my husband calls life lag, sometimes of all the fast ways we've been rushing around in our life. We stop, and it takes a while for the bits to gather. Oh, have I got my belly? No, not yet. Okay, I'll keep hanging out. Have I got my heart? Hmm? I'm not sure. Don't know what that would look like. Okay, I'll keep hanging out. So this patient, steady cultivating, we get here. We concentrate by being all of a piece and not fragmented. So you don't have to be present in your belly. It helps. It's a great resource. But for many of us, a lot of our work will be keeping hanging out with ourselves as we slowly gain the faith in the process to come home, to breathe out, to not have to try and get ground through our mind all the time. the human instinct to, to need some ground, to need something firm, to need something to hold on to, is deep. The freedom that the Buddha speaks to is about the relinquishing of that. Between here and there, he outlines a path. That instinct to need to hold on, it's instinctual, it's like a gut reflex, isn't it? It's like if you were kind of, you know, pushed off a step, your, your, your reflex would be to, to hold on to something to support you. It's, it's instinctual. So he, he understands that using that instinct to need to hold on to something, to find firmness, to find ground, use it in a way that will lead onward towards the goal of freedom. Gather and center the heart and mind around the mindfulness of body breathing. Make this your anchor. Make this a refuge in the storm. Make this something you can cultivate and come back to. Because otherwise we're doing it anyway with our mind. What are the things that you tend to go to for firmness, for ground, for holding on what do you go to in your mind typically we go to um, ideas opinions any of you hold on to certain opinions about the way things should be in the world this is a way we try and gain firmness in relationships 
we try and find our ground in our house, in our home, in religion, in politics, in going to the gym. You know, I'll get my firmness by working out every day. There's nothing wrong with that. But if it becomes our ground, our refuge, the bubble will burst at some point. Our body will get sick. Our house will, you know, we won't have enough to pay the rent. Somebody will die. Conditions will keep changing. So understanding that instinct for the need to gain ground, use it in a skillful way. Gain the ground here and now in a way that helps us get here, belly, heart, and mind, which will give us perspective on this whole life of constantly changing experience that we can come to peace with, to more peace with. And it happens so fast. Did you see it happen today? That you tried to find refuge, something to hold on to in your mind. And the Buddha has a lovely word for this. I, I think it's a lovely word. He calls it papancha. It's this way that the mind, in a flash, has built you a nice scaffold to hang on to. Right, so for example, it might be, I'm sure you could think of some examples. Here I am sitting in the meditation hall. And we notice that it's sunny outside. We just, we just kind of feel the warmth of the sun on our face. Simple thing like that. Mind feels that and goes, oh, it's such a nice day out there. Wish I could be out there and not in here. Oh, maybe I'll, uh, oh, actually, you know, the last day that it was this nice was that two weeks ago when I was on the 196 and there was that guy on the bus and I could see the sun was coming in that day and that guy on the bus, I really like that guy on the bus. I wonder if he'll be on the bus next week when I go back to work. Oh, yeah, I wonder if I could figure out what time he gets on the bus and then maybe I could... And there we are, kind of building some little story for ourselves of who we're going to be and we might have even, you know, had the wedding in our mind and, you know, whatever it is, the house with the roses around the door. And There we are in some little reality that we've made. Very fast it happens. It's very tender. We don't want to ridicule that, but we also don't want to um, make our home there. It needs compassion. The human instinct to want to hold on is a gut reflex. And as we're more and more able to come into our guts, come into our belly, we start to have the presence to handle that compelling quality of mind. So we need a lot of gentleness in this cultivation because for many of us whatever has been our history or tendencies we've moved away from the natural presence of our being the first place we usually vacate is the belly have you noticed if something difficult happens at work or you get frightened or something you don't like it's the belly that tightens up first, or we vacate. Right? That's the one that goes first. We lose resonance with the belly. If I, and, and the promise is, if I just tighten and hold here, this will hold me. This will hold me. And then I'll be able to face that, that difficult thing, or that lovely person, or that. Second thing to go is our heart, usually. Check it out for yourself. The heart is the area where we, we're in relationship with things, how we're doing with things, how we're doing with our emotional life, with each other, 
our tenderness, our anger, our numbness. Belly doesn't tell us how we're doing. It doesn't tell, tell us who we are. It just tells us, I'm here. Right? It's very basic, immediate, direct. I'm here. Sometimes we vacate belly, sometimes we vacate heart, and then we're left in a little bit at the front of our head, top of our head, trying to figure out an issue. And sometimes we don't even have that. Probably some of you will know the experience of completely leaving and not through any, I'm not talking about an, uh, uh, well, what I am talking about is when we have to move away from the body because it doesn't feel safe. It hasn't felt safe, or there's been times when it hasn't been safe. So it's not a small thing when you're invited to come to earth. It's not like you can suddenly just go, okay, okay. If you can suddenly just go, okay, great. But that will not be the majority of people's experience, that we completely get here and go, okay, yes, I can land here. We more or less landed. So when I invite you to come to earth, it may push up some of the hindrances to that, some of the objections to that. Maybe the longing for that, but also the sense of the the, the older lenses of, actually, it's not a good idea to come to earth. Even if our mind thinks it's a great idea, instinctually sometimes we think, it's not going to be okay. Somebody might shout at me. Somebody might tell me off. Somebody might ignore me. Somebody might look at me funny in the corridor. Does that happen today for anyone? When we're resting in presence, someone might look at us in the corridor or not look look at us in the corridor. It doesn't have to have any meaning. But when we're feeling uncertain or unsettled, the looks that come towards us have tremendous meaning. Why did he look at me like that? Doesn't he like me? So seeing all of that And recognizing the invitation to come to earth is a cultivation, actually. It's a cultivation. It's a blessed relief when we touch into it, and probably you're getting or have had in your life or know, maybe it's very uh, available for you, the glimpses of dropping to earth, the relief of dropping out of trying to make our home in a one-inch circuit in our frontal cortex when we come in a little bit more slowly slowly to gut presence the mind can start to relax a little bit because something else is holding us the heart the emotions or the numbness can start to relax a little bit because there's something underneath it holding it and as this process starts to slow down then the insight into it is more apparent available to us and that third part of the path of the freeing up of the mind So we don't have to be perfectly here to have insight. We don't have to wait till we are judging that we are perfectly present. We'll be waiting forever. But we can stay really close and track moment by moment, breath by breath, 
kindly, steadily. And when we space out, and when we lose the plot, and when we get angry with everybody here, we wake up to that, we can start to recognize that, we can breathe out, begin again. And just finally, I want to name, I have named some of the difficulties, right? Because they are what shows up on the first day. And not just the first day. It's part of being human. So I want to give a few moments to what else may have shown up for you in the day. Maybe what wasn't difficult about coming to earth. What you liked about coming to earth. What touched you, what inspired you, what you got a glimpse of, maybe with one foot on the earth out there. Maybe when you really let yourself feel the sun on your face. Maybe when you really saw the green of the grass out there. Or where you noticed your mind get a little quiet before it picked up the next volume and installment. Because what leads us on in this path, often, you know, they can be that real need and desire and inspiration for the possibility of the freedom from suffering, because that's what's pointed to. (coughs) And we get the glimpses of some of that territory ourselves, maybe in moments, maybe for prolonged periods, where things do settle, where things do show up in new ways. (coughs) And that, where where we're, we're here, we're open in the belly, something happens, which we normally clench around, and we don't. We learn, we gain the faith through our direct experience So those moments too aren't moments to cling to, but they are moments to recognize, to acknowledge, to celebrate. Because that's what keeps us interested. Any of you who've come back again and again to practice, it's not because you enjoy the hindrances. It's not because you um, take pleasure in all the difficulties of the mind, but we do take pleasure and delight in release and coming closer to what's true via sometimes very difficult territory, sometimes ordinary territory, sometimes marvelous territory. But what does delight the heart is coming close to a sense of more reality, as somebody said in the group today, but that kind of barometer we have for when something is authentic or true or real. That's what the heart loves. You don't have to believe me, check check it out. It's probably your experience. So when those moments and times arise, whatever it is, somebody might be saying something in the small group, it might be you saying something in the small group, it might be one of us, it might be something you're seeing in the depths of the quiet, it might be something you're seeing when the mind is kicking and screaming, but suddenly you notice something in a different way. Those moments, know them, they start to make our view of the garden very different. That it's not a fait accompli, our mind. The Buddha was so articulate with this. It's causes and conditions, and we can work with that, and that actually really makes a difference. So yes, we attend to the difficult. Of course we do, because it's part of our experience. But we also want to attend to what does inspire us, what does speak to us in the quiet moments, what really deeply brings you here, what you most care about, if you knew that, we, that you only had a few days more to live, for example. That can really clarify our motivation. So let's sit for a moment quietly together. Thank you.
May all beings rest deeply on the earth. May all beings rest deeper into body. May all beings know release. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.